Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. China's increasing influence has profoundly changed the power dynamic in Asia. For decades, its economic growth has outstripped that of Japan. And under Xi Jinping, there's also a clear ambition to build the People's Liberation Army into a world-class military. That army, through its Coast Guard division, constantly irks Japan by sailing vessels through the waters near the Senkaku or Daiyu Islands, which Japan insists are its sovereign territory. Thus, Japan has grown increasingly wary of China, both as an economic rival and as a threat to its national security. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Bill Emmert, an author and chairman of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, a think tank based in London, which provides insight into matters relating to security and political risk. Good to see you again, Bill. Good to be with you. Let's start with Japan's new prime minister, Fumio Kishida. He's announced a defense review to be conducted in 2022. What issues are on the table? Well, I think there are two big issues um, facing Japan's defense review. Uh, One is, of course, the level of defense spending. During the election campaign that uh, Kishida-san fronted, there was talk of Japan thinking about matching the NATO target of 2% of GDP spending on defense. Japan has historically used 1% of GDP as its ceiling on defense as a sort of way of of, uh, matching the stipulation in the Japanese post-war constitution that Japan should not have an offensive military power, but should only be uh, able to have a a military power that is there for its self-defense, which is why the Japanese forces are called the self-defense forces. I think what we heard in that election campaign was the beginnings of a preparation for a long-term increase, step change in Japanese spending on defense, obviously because of China, but less obviously because of the United States. I think Japan has been for a long time, but increasingly during the Trump administration and now in early Biden, concerned about the durability of the US position in Asia, the US umbrella under which Japan shelters, the dependability of the US-Japan security alliance. It's not as if Japan is planning to break with that at all. Of course it's not, but rather that it knows that it needs to make long-term plans for some greater autonomy. Well, you're helping us to look to the long term. I mentioned territorial issues at the start, Bill, and I think you and I have been talking about the Senkaku Islands near Japan, which China calls the Daiyu Islands, for 20 years at least. How do you assess the risk of a conflict breaking out there now? The risk is ever-present, but moderate because there isn't any immediate motive for China to try to change the status quo. But it's ever present because in a circumstance in which China felt threatened strategically in the South and East China Seas, for example, there was an active, perhaps uh, even hot military conflict surrounding Taiwan, suddenly the Senkaku, Daoyu Islands become much more strategically important. But if it were to seize those islands tomorrow, it would give it no particular benefit apart from provoking all sorts of conflict and adverse adverse, uh, 
reaction against it. So I don't see any immediate likelihood of it happening, but it would be in the context of a broader deterioration of the security situation in the Indo-Pacific. Let's think about the US-Japan relationship. Donald Trump held many meetings with former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. They played golf together, they ate burgers, they watched baseball. And I noticed that soon after Joe Biden became president, the then Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga went to see him in Washington. This strikes me as an alliance which is strong, even when the political leaders change. For Japan, the US is absolutely the number one diplomatic uh, relationship. Uh, Ever since 1945, the US-Japan security relationship has been crucial for Japan. Prime Minister Abe's grandfather, Nobosuke Kishi, produced a strengthening of the US-Japan security alliance that brought rioters into the streets of Tokyo in 1961, ultimately forcing his resignation. It's been absolutely the number one issue. And I think that um, when Prime Minister Abe um, really broke diplomatic convention by meeting the president-designate in New York, meeting him immediately after the election rather than waiting till he'd been inaugurated, that showed the, 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 the sense that Japan had that um, staying close to the United States was absolutely vital to its interests. Now, that doesn't mean that Prime Minister Abe thought that Donald Trump was or was not a good thing, rather that he knew that America was absolutely the vital partner. And indeed, the urgency with which he went there, I think, tells us that he realized that America wasn't any longer absolutely a dependable partner. In other words, it's, it was a sign of, of worry about the relationship. Um, and so Abe absolutely tried to be Donald Trump's best friend uh, throughout um, their time, their respective time in office. And I think we've seen the same with Prime Minister Suga, and we will see it again with Prime Minister Kishida. Um, absolutely, they need the United States. They need that relationship. Um, but they know that they have to build uh, capabilities alongside it, both in terms of military strength, but also... Crucially, I think, alternative or other words, supplementary diplomatic relationships within Asia, especially with ASEAN powers, with Australia, with India, crucially, um, also with the European Union in all sorts of multilateral fora in order that they are not bilaterally solely dependent on what is frankly an unreliable partner, the United States the country in the world that used to lead democracy and now is leading the decline of democracy and leading real doubts over the future of liberal democracy in its own country. Japan is a member of the Quad, an informal security alliance which also involves the United States, Australia and India. What's the significance of the Quad? Japanese diplomats claim to have invented the Quad. Of course, they came up with the idea, but it really took the United States to activate it. First of all, modestly under Donald Trump, but then most effectively in Joe Biden's first year by instituting a full leadership summit between the Quad, pulling India out of its traditional position of neutrality. And I think India, thanks to uh, China and China's behavior towards India, including especially the border clashes that took place Um, over the last two years, 
India has shown a greater willingness to, to sit down at the table and, 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 if you like, sit down and be counted, we might call it, um, together with uh, the United States and Japan and, and Australia. And that's, I think, the significance of the Quad. It's not a defense alliance, but it has some defense and security implications. Changing tack a bit, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about nuclear weapons. I was at a meeting recently with Norihiku Shikata from the Prime Minister's office, and he said, Mr. Kishida is very committed to nuclear disarmament. Do you think he was referring to North Korea, or was he talking about something else? In an immediate sense, he probably was talking about North Korea, but I think also China has to be the fundamental issue. Yes, it's clear that everyone believes that uh, the objective of any talks or any relationship that happens between the United States and its allies, including Japan, with North Korea, should have as its goal the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. But nobody actually believes that this is a serious prospect, um, that the North Koreans would in fact voluntarily give up nuclear weapons. I think that the real issue is China, where an increasing amount number of stories fed um, clearly to the world from the Pentagon um, have uh, suggested that China is engaged in quite a dramatic expansion of its nuclear arsenal with uh, the development of a whole lot of new uh, nuclear missile sites, with these tests of this hypersonic missile, with a sense that China is wishing to raise its nuclear arsenal to some form of equivalence to that of the United States. So I think that from a Japanese point of view, saying that you're in favor of nuclear disarmament, what it really means is that you're in favor of nuclear talks between China and the United States in a world context, which seeks to put some sort of a framework around those competing nuclear arsenals that seeks to achieve some sort of agreement about what is an acceptable level of nuclear weapons as a deterrent power uh, that puts some sort of new framework on issues such as nuclear testing, uh, missile testing, and indeed proliferation in a belief that the Cold War legacy of, uh, of agreements about testing, about proliferation, um, about missiles are, are now obsolete, partly because they were agreements between the United States and Russia, which is no longer the important nuclear power in the world. The important nuclear power in the world, apart from the US, is now China. So I think that's the Japanese concern. And that, I think, is the position that Kishida-san is wishing to voice. Earlier, you mentioned Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister. His voice remains influential. Mr. Abe made some outspoken remarks about Taiwan. I'll read you a couple of quotes that he used in his speech to a, a think tank based in Taipei. He said, Japan, Taiwan and all the democratic countries need to keep urging President Xi Jinping and the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party not to step onto the wrong path. He also said military adventure would lead to economic suicide. Those are strong quotes. What's your interpretation of that speech? Well, I think, first of all, I agree that um, Prime Minister Abe remains um, the single most powerful and influential politician in Japan, one among many influential ones, but uh, thanks to his long period in office, thanks to the reputation he has internationally, 
thanks to the number of people in the LDP who owe their position to him. Shinzo Abe has a quite conservative, quite hawkish, quite, uh, if you like, historically revisionist background, but he, in office, offered a more pragmatic position, more diplomatic. Indeed, one of his first steps is, in office as prime minister was to reopen talks with China um, and try to thaw the current freeze with China. Now he's out of office. I think he feels at liberty to go back to his more hawkish position, if you like, go back to the real Shinzo Abe. He doesn't represent government policy, but he influences it. Uh, and I think that that's what he is seeking to do, to, if you like, stiffen the spine of the foreign ministry, of the defense agency, of, uh, of the cabinet um, over Taiwan, and offer that kind of hawkish end of the range of positions. And I think Shinzo Abe is determined to keep Taiwan and the protection of Taiwan absolutely in the headlines. Well, I, I'm sure that's true. And Taiwan's risen not just to the top of the agenda in terms of regional security, but it's also a matter of economic significance, isn't it? Uh, Taiwan's applied to join the CPTPP trade bloc, as has China and South Korea. Japan's vote on who gets into that club is going to be crucial. How do you see that process playing out? Well, I think, first of all, it'll play out slowly. It's intended to be a consensual process. Secondly, I think that uh, given the provocative nature of that China and Taiwan choice or uh, you know, competing applications, I think that uh, nobody will wish to rush to um, judgment on either of them. I think the important thing from Japan's point of view is to defend the high standards of the CPTPP in trade terms and not be seen to accept any desire by its co-members of CPTPP to relax those standards in order to admit any particular country. And that includes the United Kingdom, by the way, which is um, ahead in the queue of, as an applicant. This is not really a negotiation. It's a question of whether you meet the criteria. And I think that um, in the UK case, Japan and the other members will be keen to establish a principle which says you join us, we don't join you, we don't relax our standards for you, you have to meet what we require. And that's fair enough. And that's absolutely what the UK will expect. But it sets a good benchmark for then dealing with China, and indeed, Taiwan for saying, you know, we've set our standards between ourselves, we're not relaxing them to admit anyone, even if you are the world's second biggest economy in the case of China, or even if there are political reasons why some people might like you in, in the case of Taiwan. Well, thank you, Bill. We've covered a lot of ground, but I still feel there's so much more that we could say. That was the author, Bill Emmett, Chairman of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, or IISS, in London. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.